0: Thank you, Gaynelle. It's such a blessing to have Gaynelle praying uh, for you. Aren't you guys blessed by her prayers? Such an encouragement to us. All right. Well, let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Of course, you can follow along using the U Version Bible app, just like every week. We won't have any scriptures on the screen here on our Tech Sabbath Sunday, obviously, but you can follow along using the analog paper version. Uh, so all you need to do is uh, just uh, take the, uh, the UVersion uh, app out, and you can do that as well and have all of the notes and the scriptures there. But I'm going to read a passage that should be familiar to us. We've been reading it in our Advent readings. We've been reading it every week for the last uh, many weeks as we've been going through our Advent series. And today we close our series as we reflect on the unbelievable gift that God has given to us. From Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's holy, inerrant, and beautiful word. May he add his blessing to its reading and its proclamation. Throughout the Advent season, we've been reflecting on the idea that we've been given an unbelievable gift. A few weeks ago, somebody came to me after church and they said, can we call it the believable gift? They said, because I believe it. And I said, that's wonderful. I'm so glad that's true. And, and, and we don't mean in any way to imply that the gift that God has given us through his son, Jesus, is unbelievable, as in you can't believe it. But rather what we're pointing out is that so often we don't believe it. We don't functionally actually believe the good news of Jesus. So often through Sunday afternoon, through the following Saturday night, the temptation is to have a theory, an idea about who Jesus was and what God has done for us through him. But to functionally live out of that belief on Monday morning and Wednesday afternoon and Friday night means that we have to recognize the reality that that gift that God has given us is not just for Sunday morning religion, but faith-filled reality throughout our week. So when we said that this is an unbelievable gift, we're simply addressing the fact that in the human heart, there's a temptation to say, yes, yes, I know what the Bible says. But. And as soon as we put that but there. We've started to live not out of faith. But out of fear or frustration or futility. We live out of our fallenness. Mm-hmm. So when we say the unbelievable gift. We're trying to address the reality That God's wanting to say to us, you need to believe this in every moment of your life. That Jesus is all that he was prophesied hundreds of years before to be by the prophet Isaiah. So today, we're gonna take an overview of all seven of those verses. We've been breaking down these wonderful realities of who Jesus is, we've seen Jesus as incarnate light come into a dark world. We've seen Jesus as a wonderful counselor, the one who truly does understand our situation and our reality better than we do. We've seen him as mighty God, the God who's active and and at work in this world. We've seen him as the everlasting father, the one who comes to us with the father's heart and wants to bring us into a reconciled relationship with his father. Right, And last week, we've seen how Theo pointed out and unpacked for us the idea that he's a prince, he has authority, he has the warlike spirit to bring us into peace, into reconciliation with God. So today, we're going to take a look at how all of that fits together under the idea that this baby that we believe came to earth as fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ, God's Son, is King of kings and Lord of lords. We're going to see how Isaiah unpacks it. So we'll look at three main themes, the child king, the glorious king, and the zealous king. The child king, the glorious king, and the zealous king. If you go to Isaiah 9-6, right there, at the very middle of this passage, as we've been reflecting on it, it says, For to us, to you and to me, a child is born. Now, there's the, there's the child part of a child king, right? With, that, it, you know, quintessential to the Christian faith is this idea that God became man, that the Son, who was eternally begotten of the Father, took on flesh, He pre-existed, the word became flesh in this world, right? And then he takes on flesh to be what we could not have been, the perfect son of Adam. And to die a death for us and to be raised for us. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, all right? And we're familiar with that. But now the next phrase that I want us to reflect on is this. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And then his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Think about that phrase though. The government shall be upon his shoulder. A child born to govern the world. A child born to govern your heart. A child born to govern the United States in the 21st century, China in the 15th century, and if he doesn't return, Indonesia in the 23rd century. See, this king is a king for all ages, at all places, at all times. And this child king has the entire weight of the governance of God's kingdom on his shoulders. So what that means for you and me is this. that. That if we're a person who recognizes that our hearts are unruly and our lives are ungoverned and our nations are fallen and that every political leader we've ever met or heard of has always failed, even if it's just through their death and the end of their reign, he's the king we've been looking for. He's the child king we've all been looking for. That's what Matthew's whole gospel, by the way, is built on. This idea that there's a king that has come. And his kingdom is advancing. And so early on in the Gospel of Matthew, what do you find happening when Jesus is born in the manger? Matthew says in Matthew 2, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, see there was another king, an earthly king, over a specific area who was under the authority, by the way, of Caesar. Right? So in the days of Herod the king who was under the reign of another king, Pilate or or, or, uh, Caesar, Augustus Caesar, and there's Pontius Pilate uh, is going to be coming later on down south there. In the days that that's happening, it says, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. This child king is the king that the human race has been looking for all of their lives. We just didn't know we were looking for him. And God sends these wise men across the deserts from what is likely Iran now, uh, northern Iraq maybe, right in that area, and brings them down all the way across Thousands of miles to seek a king. And the question is, are we seeking him? Because the thing about kings is this. They have a government. And they want to be in charge. And when their kingdoms clash with our kingdoms... We tend not to like that. This last year, we have seen this happen. From January 6th of this last year, when people in rebellion against the government of this nation acted sinfully and unjustly and unrighteously in rebellion against God-given authority in this land over mandates that were designed to protect the populace, the rise of heart of people is to say, I want my way. But we shouldn't be shocked by that. Because that's the nature of the human heart. See, that child king that was sought, what happens when Herod finds out there's another king? He tries to kill him, right? And by the way, that is the official charge that Jesus is actually executed under. Do you remember that? 33 or so years later, Herod will be long gone, but Pontius Pilate will use this as his legal pretext to justify the charge against him. For if you read in Matthew a little bit farther, Matthew 27, it says, When they had crucified him, the Roman soldiers had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots, and over his head they put the charge against him. Here it is, the legal charge against Jesus. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. 33 years later that baby grows up to be exactly what the wise men were looking for and he so threatens the greatest empires of the age and the local sovereignty of the local government there and all of the local religious leaders authority. He so threatens him, there's only one solution, this guy's got to die. The child grows up. And the government is still on his shoulders, and that's what he gets executed for. Deep inside every human heart since the garden has been a desire to be king ourselves. That's what Satan promised. You will be like God, and you will know the difference between good and evil. You'll get to decide. And you don't have to listen to his word. So you and me, we can decide today. I'm going to be king. I'm king. You know what you 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 hear so often from little kids? You're not the boss of me, (laughs) right, April? Do you ever hear that as in in teaching? You know, you're not the boss of me. Well, we all adopt that heart posture towards God. You're not the boss of me. So while we may want a king to come and save us, free us, give us good things, we don't really want that government to come. When we say Jesus is the child king, we're not just saying, oh, look at the little baby who seems so non-threatening. Notice he was never seen that way by the people around him. That child threatened everything. So much so they were willing to commit mass genocide of every child in a city in order to try and stop him from governing. So much so that they'll execute him publicly, mock him, spit upon him, brutalize his body as trying to make it an example to the world. Don't follow that king. Right? So here's the question for you and me. Who's actually reigning in our hearts? Who has authority over your emotions? Who gets to decide what you're going to do with your time and your money? Who gets to decide what happens with the rest of your life? The king... That we have all been in rebellion against, for the scripture says that that we all are alienated from him and hostile in mind and we're his enemies and doing evil deeds. That king, he demands to govern your life. So don't be thinking that the baby is innocent, that the baby is no threat to you. The child king threatens every other kingdom. There has ever been. He will shatter the kingdoms you've built. Because that's what he does. His kingdom is invasive. But it's also a saving kingdom. The king who came to save us. The one who comes to govern us comes to save us from our bondage. He's going to deliver you from all of the other kingdoms that are in authority over your life. He's going to deliver you from the kingdom of Satan. He's going to deliver you from the kingdom of the world and its philosophies. He's going to deliver you from the kingdom of your sin, right? That's the thing about this king. In order for his government to come, he has to free you from everything else. So in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we all once walked. We were in a kingdom of death the child king who has the government on his shoulder, he's going to say to those of us that are following the course of this world, who are following the prince of the power of the air, the following the, the spirit that is now at work in the sons and daughters of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, that king is going to come and say, here's the thing, you may have been carrying out the desires of your body and your mind, you are children of wrath, you deserve death, like everybody else, but God loves you. His, despite the fact that you're a rebel, that you're hostile, despite the fact that you're everything, you're trying to set up all of this, the orientation of God is that God loves you and he is rich in his mercy. And because of that great love with which he loves us, even though we are dead, he will make us alive by his grace. Do you understand what it means To look at the manger and not think of some little baby that you're supposed to protect and take care of. But to throw yourself before the baby. And say, this is the king. Who has existed from eternity past. Who has made all things. In the song that Andrew Peterson wrote and, and has been uh, promulgated by so many different artists, there's a line that says that the, the child in Mary's womb is the maker of the mountains and the maker of the faith that moves it. Oh. Do you understand the child king that wants to come and reign in your life? But he's not just a child king, he's a glorious king. Isaiah wants us to get that this this child that the government will be on his shoulders He's going to be glorious. And we've looked at some of that in the last few weeks. But go back to Isaiah 9 1. And he says, Listen, right now the world is looking very dark. For Isaiah's people, the time in which they were living, they had rejected the authority of God, the salvation of God. Their king had gone and sought armies and help uh, from uh, other political leaders. And they thought they had had this temporary deliverance from the Assyrian Empire. And it turns out, whenever you try to bribe the Assyrian Empire, all they do is take you over. Uh, which is what was happening. And so the nation of Israel had been ripped away. The kingdom of Judah was about to be destroyed. The Assyrians were going to take over all of this. And the world looked very dark. Very, very dark. Because the people of God are about to be enslaved for the next 70 years. And he says, but in a land of darkness, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the first part of God's kingdom to collapse there in the northern part of Judea, along the lake of Galilee. And he says, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So he's saying there's going to come a time when the place where it seems darkest, where the world is most broken, that he's going to make something really beautiful happen. When we talk about God's glory, we're talking about not just a glow, not just some some, uh, physical manifestation of light, although that is often an expression of God's glory. We're talking about God's beauty, His weight, his majesty, his significance, his awesomeness. You could think of it this way. When you see a a big parade happen, maybe it's the Rose Parade, you go, wow, there's a a lot of effort, a lot of beauty, a lot of majesty in that moment, right? Or maybe if you've seen a a big political parade or... um, you know, if you're English, you've seen one of those great English parades with the queen and all of her chariots and everything else. There's, there's some, some weight and significance to that. But what happens when the child king shows up is that he shows up in a manger stripped of all visible glory. And yet, Scripture says that he's a beautiful king. That he's the source of all majesty and awesomeness and weight. In fact, Isaiah is trying to say, listen, God is going to take this area in which nobody has counted of any significance and he's going to make it the most glorious region in the world because that's where God's going to incarnate himself in the form of this child. Isaiah is going to put it this way in Isaiah 4 two. In that day, he says, the branch of the Lord, which is Jesus, by the way, the branch of the Lord, shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. If you go to Jesus and you think of him merely as a functional transaction for you, Jesus came, he died so that I don't have to, and I don't want to go to hell. And so, okay, I'll accept the salvation he has to give. But you don't actually see his beauty If you don't want him to carry the greatest significance in your heart, he'll never be your king. It's not a transaction at a drive through window where you drive up and you say, Jesus, here's my faith, and in transaction, I want my salvation, and then I move on with the rest of my life. This king comes with beauty that means he comes with a desire to be the satisfaction of your heart my heart he comes to bring light for he's the light-bearing king. Now, we spent a whole Sunday talking about this, but remember this, that in Isaiah 9, 2, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. On them, has dwelt, on them who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. He comes to bring light into the darkness. When you and I are walking through this world and we don't know where to go, we don't know what is happening, when everything seems so dark around us, and maybe you're feeling like that, through Christmas season. Christmas season can be very lonely. It can be very um, hard for us if we don't have lots of family. You may feel like, gosh, the world just seems so dark and it seems... And people come to me and they go, oh, I think things are worse than when I was a kid. And let me just give you words from a really wise man who lived about 3,000 years ago, King Solomon. He says, it's not from wisdom that you say the old days were better. <laughs> okay? So stop saying that. Uh, but yeah, You may feel that because our political empire may be collapsing. Our religious culture may be degrading. But guess what? The world's always been dark ever since the fall. But into that dark world has come light. And Christians, no matter how dark the world is, you walk in light. The light of God's presence. And by the way, the darker the room, the more significant even a small light is. Right? So you have a light-bearing king. You have a joy-bearing Giving king. Isaiah 9.3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Uh, the company Tracy just works for, they just had a bumper year of olive oil production. And they're rejoicing in all of their production, right? They, there's joy that comes from a bumper crop, right? Right? Well, guess what? When God multiplies his work in this world, it's intended to bring you and me joy. When we see his kingdom advancing into the lives of other people, that... Is, is God's design to bring us to true and real joy. The more we see his kingdom invade us, we see areas that last year were just seemed like they were so impossible for us to get over this sin habit or we never thought this conflict was going to be resolved and then we see God's kingdom invading those areas and we see him changing us and transforming us. What does that bring you and me to? Joy. This joy-giving king wants to bring you and me more and more joy as we yield to his government. And he's a king who frees us. Right, so Isaiah nine four for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian multiple word pictures here that that these people who have been under the oppression of God's enemies they're they're like in a yoke under under an, uh, uh, the way you you connect two cows together or the way two oxen are connected together and they're forced to carry the weight of a threshing sledge or a plow, right? He says that's going to be broken. The yoke's going to be broken. And, and there's a staff, there's a, somebody keeping you from going where, where your heart truly longs to go for. Well, that's also going to be broken. And he says the, the deliverance of God is going to be just like the deliverance that God gave to the children of Israel under Gideon. And so he's a king who comes to bring freedom. Now, it's not unlimited or unbounded freedom because we are come under his kingdom, right? Some people think, that well, I became a Christian. That means I don't have anybody in charge of my life. Now, I don't have this in your notes, but 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. In other words... When you come into the kingdom of Jesus, you're under his authority. He's freed you from his enemies and from those things that would oppress you. So in Hebrews 2.14 it says this, that since the children share in flesh and blood and we're under this, this oppression of being in the flesh and the blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things so that through death he might destroy the one that has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus came to set you free from Satan, from death, from sin and its oppression, You and I have a kingdom that has invaded us and has freed us from all of these other bondages. And that freedom includes a freedom from the tyranny of self-saving religion. We are not free unto a religion, but free unto a relationship with Almighty God. So the way it's put in... Uh, Acts 13, 38, it says that the apostles were proclaiming this. They said that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. You don't have to pay for your sins. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So let's say you go to the law of Moses and it says to you, you shall have no other gods before you. You know, because the law has informed you and convicted you, that having anything else be more significant, more a source of safety or security or blessing into your life besides God, you know now that's a sin. But you know what the law can't make you do? It can't free you from idolatry. The law can tell you not to murder. But it can't free you from hatred in your heart. The law can tell you not to commit adultery, but it can't free you from lust. The law can tell you don't be a self-serving, selfish, stealing kind of person, but it can't give you a heart of a servant. The law can tell you not to lie about God or about other people, but it can't free you to be a person who speaks the truth and love in all circumstances and at all times, can it? See, the law of God is good and it's effective, but it can't free you. Only Jesus can set you free. In fact, that's the claim that Jesus makes, that he will free you from all of these things. And get this, that he will free you from living a lie. Now, next year, you come next week, we're going to talk about setting our theme for 2022. And we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a people who live in the light. And every one of our message series next year, everything we're going to be doing next year is going to be built around this theme of what does it mean to be a people who live in the light? Live in the light of God's grace. But there's a tension there. Because we all know the ugliest parts of our lives. We know the secret thoughts Fears, the selfish dreams. We know the things we've done wrong. And we don't really like it when people show us those things, do we? And so what we do is the same thing that Adam and Eve did. And we've been doing as a human race for thousands of years. We sew outfits made out of fig leaves. We dress ourselves up. We put on good acts and cover our lives with them. And we become spiritual pretenders. And you know what? Those fig leaf hula skirts that we put on, they're heavy. the more layers we try to put on on top of the other layers, on top of the other layers, we become like the the little boy Randy in the Christmas story who's got so many layers on to protect him from the, the, the winter that he can't put his arms down. The kid's not free. And the more lies we put on and try and pretend about who we are, the heavier that suit feels. And it's not free. So the invitation of the king is for him to come and say, let me take all of that off of you. And just as Adam and Eve were covered by the blood of animals that were slain, for them to have proper clothes that God had to give them we need to be covered by his blood and freed from all those fake outfits. So this king has come to free you from living a lie. Jesus says to the people who had believed in him, he says, if you abide in my word, you rest, you believe that I am everything that I have said I am, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Right? And then he says, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. So this king came to set us free. He came to end conflict. Theo preached a wonderful message on him being the prince of peace. I won't repeat it, but just look at Isaiah 9.5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Jesus comes to bring an end to all conflict, the conflict between man and God, man and man. He comes to reconcile us to one another. In Isaiah 2, it's going to say that that men's uh, swords will be beat into plowshares. The weapons will be turned into sources of productivity. This king comes to end conflict because he reigns. And if we're all in right alignment with him, then we're brought into a place of relational peace. And he's a just and righteous king. If you go to Isaiah 9-7, it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, okay? So we're going to come back to that in just a second, but just listen to this for just a second. On the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. Now, what if you woke up tomorrow morning and you had the absolute certainty that the governor of California, the state assembly here in California, the senators of the United States... And the House of Representatives and the Supreme Court Justices of this land and the people sitting in the White House and in Blair House, the Vice President, President of the United States. If those people, what if you knew with absolute certainty that they were always, without exception, going to do the right thing? Forever. We think that's impossible, right? Even the good people don't always do the right things. Even wise governors make mistakes. But what if there was a king who will always do that which is just, always do that which is right, always make every decision, and will make all of time and space and history and matter all point to the end where what happens in the end is the right thing. That's what Isaiah is saying about this king. That his justice, his righteousness will be done, and that he is so in authority, he's taking all that humans have ever done and is making it work to what is absolute justice and absolute righteousness. That's amazing. I mentioned this just a minute ago, but Isaiah says when he's talking about this glorious king that he's a forever king. And I don't mean just forever in time. He's a forever king in the sense that there's always an expansion to his kingdom. There's always more and more being brought under his authority into his knowledge. Look at Isaiah 9-7 again. It says, "...of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end." Jesus' kingdom is always expanding. Now, you and I may not see it. We may feel like, in fact, that Jesus' kingdom is contracting. Right? In American culture, guess what? The cultural Christianity of America is fading. And that is not a bad thing. Because it becomes a place and a chance for us to say, listen, a lot of that was just culture. It was not about real relationship with God. But of the increase of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, of his peace, there will be no end. And then it goes on to say, On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. In other words, brothers and sisters, the kingdom of Jesus will not only be forever expanding, it goes on forever. I don't know what that looks like. But we just launched, on Christmas Day, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, it's going to take months to get it to the edge of our galaxy. And when it gets there, it's got a giant sunshade that's the size of a tennis court. And the reason that sunshade is so important is this telescope needs to get so cold... That the only light it sees is from the farthest reaches of space. How cold? Minus 233 degrees centigrade. That's really cold. But when the telescope works, scientists believe they will be able to see light from the far edges of the known universe. The estimation is that the Webb telescope will be able to look back in time 15 billion years. Now think about that for just a second. If there's an edge of the universe that we can mathematically calculate to be at least 15 billion years old, You've got a God that's been creating this universe for at least 15 billion years. Amen. And he's been building his kingdom. Imagine the reality of what we're trying to say here is that the kingdom of Jesus has been planned from eternity past before there was a universe. And God is going to say, not only did this kingdom have a beginning point, it's going to go on forever. In all directions, for all time. No wonder that in the author, the book of, uh, the author of Hebrews, <clears throat> cites Psalm 47. And he says, of Jesus The scripture says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Forever, there is a God who is infinitely happy in bringing all things under his authority to serve his purposes for all time, forever. Do you begin to see that this little baby is the king that is ultimately glorious. So here's the question. In your mind and in your heart, have you made this glorious king into a God you can manage or think that you can ultimately comprehend? Mm -hmm. That you know even the edges of his glory. Do you see how foolish that would be? All right. So we have a child king. We have a glorious king. But we have a zealous king. Isaiah 9-7, the climax of this passage, uh, Pastor Ray Ortland, brilliant Isaiah scholar, says that the whole climax of this passage comes down to the last phrase of Isaiah 9-7 when it says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How do you know, how can you be sure that what happens with this child that will be born will actually bear fruit? How do you know that all of these promises that we've unpacked about God's glory will come true? How do you know this is what's going to happen? Because we've seen all these other people, all these other kings make great and glorious plans. We haven't had a president yet that's kept his promises. So no wonder we're cynical, But the Bible says the reason you can know and bank your life on this is that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, the Lord of hosts can be translated the Lord of armies, the one who has authority over all authorities forever. His zeal, his passion, his ardor will drive this to happen. So there's some things we need to think about. Number one, God is not unemotional or apathetic. We might think of God as being sort of Above human emotions, we buy into Platonic philosophy as if God does not have emotions and we forget that as creatures we were created to image forth his emotions. Now, sin has twisted those emotions and corrupted them, but God is not unemotional or apathetic. Now, here's something I learned this week, okay? I've been preaching a long time. I've been studying God's word for a long time. I'm, I'm constantly learning new things. Here's the new thing I learned this week that the word in Hebrew for zeal and for zealousness has the same root and in fact is often the exact same word that is translated in your Bibles, jealousy. Zeal and jealousy are, as one Isaiah scholar puts it, the flip sides of the same coin. That when God is passionate to be loved and to be in a loving relationship with you, he is jealous that nothing else get in the way. Now, in human relationships, jealousy is almost always unrighteous because we don't—we're not entitled to love, but God is always entitled to our love, right? And and I just want you to hear some of the ways that the Bible expresses this. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God, says Nahum, and says God to Moses. That God is jealous for a relationship with with people, with you and me. Um If you look in Joel 2.18, it says this, that the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. He was jealous that there were oppressors. He was jealous that these people were straying after other gods. And so what's God's response? To have pity and out of that jealousy, out of that zeal and passion and profound love, God's going to make a people for himself. Uh, God's jealous biblically for the glory of his name. He doesn't want anybody to think that there some other lover that is better than him he knows he's the best lover and he doesn't want anybody thinking that he's not the best so in Ezekiel 39 it says therefore thus says the Lord God now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name why is that good news to you and me Because God's zeal for his name and for his people means this. That he will always be driven by his passion for us and his own glory. And that culminates in the reality of his love. It's the reason John 3.16 works. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, eternally begotten of the father, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The question that that entire belief system hinges on is how great is the love of God for you, for you, for me? This week, one of the pastors I most admire, I I stumbled across an article written by him and he talked about a really hard time you went through a few years ago in, in ministry and life. And he said, the question that came down was simply this. Did God actually love me? I could believe all the other theology. The only question was whether or not I could believe whether or not God loves me. Folks, if you don't believe God loves you, you will always be driven by a pursuit of other loves or other lovers. That's the way our hearts work. So I want to ask you, is the God that you believe in, this child king who is ultimately glorious, do you believe he is zealous for you? Now, when I was... 30 years ago. Zealous for the love of a young lady. I went way out of my way. Everything in my life got disrupted. I failed Greek because of my zealous love for this young lady. She was much better than Greek verbs. (laughs) That's the way we need to ask ourselves about our conception of God. Do we think God, in his love and his zeal, is passive? See, I think when we think of God's love, we think of it as passive love. Well, I love you. Have a nice day. But that's not the way my love worked when I was trying to pursue the affections of this young woman. I wrote notes. I put together scavenger hunts. I made dinner. I did all of these things. Because God's love is so much greater than my love. Why do you and I not think that God's love is active? Isaiah says it this way. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. In other words, God who loves you is not passive today. He is in pursuit of you and he is going to have you and he is going to make himself glorious in your life now. The God of the Bible is zealous for you. There's a Christian song that says he is jealous for you. Well, flip the word on the other side of the coin. He's zealous for you. He's acting zealously, not just for you but for his kingdom of saints and his church. He's acting to bring forth his just saving kingdom. All right, now this is a long passage. You may want to turn there in your own Bibles or in your Bible app. We're going to look at Isaiah 59, verse 14 through 17, 19 through 20. Just as we begin to wrap this up here, listen to this. Isaiah, decades later, says this. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. The world hasn't gotten better. It's just gotten worse around Isaiah. Truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. When you stop doing the wrong thing, people start attacking you. And then he says, the Lord saw it. And it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. What was he going to do? Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He dressed himself as this zealous warrior that he described earlier. Here's how he put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. When God sees the world getting dark and everything around it looking like he's not in pursuit, what does he do? He dresses himself for battle. And what's the outcome? If you read in verses 19 through 20, so they, a people, will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. What do you need to take away from that? When you turn from all the other kingdoms that have been vying for your attention, you will find that you have been being chased. Your whole life. And a mighty warrior is coming for you. The true and great prince has come for his bride. And we see that in the life of Jesus Christ, right? Don't ever think of Jesus as living a passionless life. I love the fact that Mel Gibson called the movie that he made about the crucifixion of Jesus the passion, but don't limit Jesus' passion to what happened in the final days of his life. The passionate Jesus loved, wept, laughed, ate, hated sin and hated disease and touched and healed and forgave and fought man-made religion the disciples would look at him and say what they could think of was that zeal for the house of God drove him. The zealous one. And that zeal drove him not only to cross to the cross, but through death to an empty tomb, to the ascension where even now he awaits his return. He's waiting for the moment when his father says, Now, son, go get your bride. Go get her. Brothers and sisters, you and I live in that hope. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is zealously conquering his enemies now. And he is building his kingdom of saints and he is coming to claim his church. if you look in Revelation, you find there this passage that the world, the kingdoms of this earth will make war on the Lamb. But the Lamb will conquer them. Why? For He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. May God make that so in our lives. Let's pray. Oh, Father, deepen our love for you. Thank you for your love that is so zealous and jealous and beautiful and glorious and freeing and light and life-giving. Let us live in the light of your grace and beauty this week. Let us know the love that that you are in pursuit of us with. Let us rest. Our salvation, it doesn't depend on us, but on you. So turn our hearts to you. The, The health and future of our church doesn't depend on us. It depends on you. So turn our minds to you. The transformation of our character doesn't depend on us ultimately, but depends on you. So God, advance your kingdom into every choice of our will. That you may be exalted. That your kingdom may come in us and through us. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the risen King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.